standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 289 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I have a badly bruised ear. Tell me more. Tell me more. I hit myself with a barbell which landed on it. It wasn't massively heavy, it was only 12 kilos, but like when that bit of metal does slam into just the tip of your ear, I've got a purple ear. It's very sore. Don't drop a barbell on your ear and neck, guys. That would be my recommendation. I can't even... Valuable life lessons, as ever, um, maybe. Yeah. Compute how that would happen. I I can't really understand the motion. We were doing a half Turkish get-up with a barbell, Jen. So you lie on the floor like you're, you're holding a javelin and then you have to get up whilst looking at it and holding it. And I did it quite easily with a seven, and I thought, oh, I'll try the next one up, which was a 12, and was too heavy for me, and so I I slipped and smacked myself in the head with it. That's quite a big difference, seven and 12. (laughs) There's no 10, there's no interim, yeah, so it was was that or nothing. And yeah, I I should have picked nothing, (laughs) absolutely. If you had asked me what I thought a half Turkish get-up was before (laughs) this moment... I really don't know what I would have said. Probably sex position. <laughs> position of the fortnight. Why is it only half Turkish? I didn't have to stand up. I just had to get to sort of kneeling. Right, okay. You didn't have to eat baklava while doing it. Oh, my goodness. I could have done with a sugary rush, to be honest with you, Hannah. I'm Hannah Levy, and I'm very excited because Woody Harrelson Day is here. Happy Woody Harrelson Day to you, Hannah. I may observe it now, this this day every year. I spent a lot of time with Woody Harrelson recently, actually. Have you? Yeah. In what respect? You've been re-watching True Detective? Indeed, that's exactly okay. how, yeah. He's so good in it. Just his face whenever Matthew McConaughey is doing a McConaughey. He's just like, yeah. what is going on? It's so funny. I've forgotten how very funny it is. Maybe I should explain. I'm going to the theatre. With Woody Harrelson as your date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And Andy Serkis. Things just got quite weird. Yeah. <laughs> is Andy Serkis going as Caesar? Because that would... I really hope so. Oh, that would I be really amazing. I really hope so. It's me and Caesar and Colonel Kurtz alike back together. What a day. I think we should all celebrate. Well, what a celebration I have planned. I'm Jen Offord and does anyone want to do my tax return for me? Absolutely Fuck not. Off. No. No. Every year, every year I find myself here at the end of oh, January. I've been there, Jen. It's awful. Why? I hate it. Why do I do it to myself every yeah. year? Why am I this person? And when you try and watch telly to prevaricate or listen the to adverts. a podcast, it's all full of adverts saying fill in your tax return. Bloody Moira Stewart in a teacup telling me to crack on with it or whatever <laughs> the fuck it is. Jesus Christ, Moira. I love you, but no. Moira Stewart in a teacup also sounds like a sex position, doesn't it? <laughs> do you remember when you saw her in the supermarket? Yes, I think I messaged you both straight away saying I've just seen Moira Stewart in Sainsbury's in Chiswick. And everyone was like, what a spot. What a spot. I'd just say, absolutely stunning. If that's a sex position, Moira Stewart in a teacup, I'm here for it. (laughs) I think we should move on. Um, I'm just thinking you'll do anything to not fill in your tax return, won't you? (laughs) Anything. Coming up, I chat to author Kylie Reid, whose first novel, Such a Fun Age, which had racial tensions as its focal point, and still managed to be very warm and funny, was a zeitgeisty international bestseller. What she followed it up with? Find out. I'm talking to comedian Laura Smith about comedy, cancer, and her debut show, Living My Best Life, which is coming to a venue near you from April the 4th. And you might want to buy a ticket, because as we talk about, it's selling very fast. Good for Laura. In Jenny Off The Blocks, we've got boxing, rugby and football as we catch up with the many goings-on in women's sport. And in Rated or Dated, we ask, is there anything redeemable about 1999's She's All That? Right about now. Shall I save us 20 minutes? <laughs> <and> just, <laughs> just leave it there. No, you can't. But before we get to that, a rush of good news. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Honest. Cue stink. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Hope you all survived slash enjoyed the double fisting. I'm sat on one of those little rubber rings, Hannah. <laughs> it was the weather. The Met Office seemed to come up with this must-been-deliberate expression, double fisting, to explain how rain and snow were going to arrive yeah, at the yeah. same time. So I think they were trying to say, you know, you get punched in the face from both sides. But I also think they were trying to say, yeah, you know, 
where the mummy and daddy love each other very much. <laughs> they never do that ever again. No. I think it's an accepted term in Canada for a long time when it comes to weather and, I assume, sexual endeavours. It's still happening though, isn't it? We're we still getting fisted. Well, actually, it wasn't that bad here. I looked at a map of where it was going to be affected by this and there's like a little bit that wasn't in the middle of the country. And I live in that. I mean, it was really windy, but, you know, my bins were where I left them. So, yeah, I was quite lucky. You escaped the double fisting. Do you feel a little bit left out, Hannah? Do we need to pay someone to remedy that? (laughs) No, I'm good, thank you. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about Norfolk Police, which has referred itself to the police watchdog over its handling of a case which ended in four deaths in a village near Norwich. On Friday morning, a 999 call was made from the house, but the police did not respond. After a second call from a neighbour later the same morning, police forced entry to the house and found the bodies of a man, a woman and two children. Now, I'm not going to speculate on what happened, no matter how much my gut tells me I already know. Yeah, my gut is in tune as well, Hannah. But what I can say is a Home Office spokesperson said the government had gone, quote, further than ever before to tackle domestic abuse. I mean, that very much depends on how far you've gone before, doesn't it? Well, exactly. Do you believe that, Mick? No. Or do you believe the figures that the Lib Dems uncovered last year, which suggested that people calling in domestic incidents sometimes had to wait up to 13 hours for police to arrive? That rings more true. Labour, if you're looking for another reason to vote for them, do think there's an answer and at the weekend Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper told the Beebs Laura Kunzberg that control centres answering 999 calls need domestic abuse specialists on hand and Labour would install such specialists to provide quote expertise to deal with difficult cases. It would be too late for so many women and children but if it prevents just some such cases it's got to be tried. It seems a no-brainer Yeah. And also employing police officers that don't have a history of domestic abuse. I'm just going to put that one out there as well. Yeah. Now, regular listeners will know that one of the drums we bang on the reg on Standard Issue is the gender health gap and how it doesn't just fuck over women. It fucks over society. To be clear, it mostly fucks over women. Plus a change, Hannah. Plus a change. You can hear me chatting about all of this in a recent interview with Sarah Graham, whose book Rebel Bodies is a deep dive into the shit swamp of medical misogyny. We also talk about the economic costs of not giving a hoot about women's health, which is vast. How vast? Well, new data from the World Economic Forum and the McKinsey Health Institute, published in Davos last week, estimates that closing the gender health gap could add at least $1 trillion... That's a made-up amount of money, Mickey, surely. (laughs) All the money in the world, or £790 billion a year, to the global economy by 2040. Nice bit of pocket money, that. Imagine if you stashed that under your mattress. Yeah. Nose to ceiling. Every $1 invested to improve women's health could generate $3 for the economy, as it allows more women to actively participate in the workforce. It could lead to an extra seven healthy days each year for every woman on more than 500 days over a lifetime. A week, a year of feeling better. That is staggering. Blimey. The report's release coincided with the launch of the Global Alliance for Women's Health, a multi-sector global platform to improve investment in women's health. And at least 42 organisations have signed up to support the alliance, pledging $55 million. Now, look, whether any of this will lead to significant change is a finger in the air. But it's good news that it's in the news and that investment in women's health is even being talked about. And the cynic in me can't help but think that making it about the bottom line rather than about, you know, women is going to make a lot more people sit up and take notice. Yeah, I agree. It is a good tactic. Make it about the money. Yeah, follow the money. Well, that seems like good news. And, oh, hello, more good news. Nice of you to show up. What a day. Data released last week revealed that deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon declined by, well, forgive the scientific jargon here, a shitload last year. (laughs) Just 1,990 square miles of the Amazon were cleared in 2023, 
I mean, I know just 1,990 square miles, but that is down from 10,278 square miles in 2022, which, according to Brazil's Environment Ministry, means deforestation was at a five-year low. Great. But don't get too excited because with the one hand I give it and with the other I take it away and then punch you in the face and they get both hands to give you a double (laughs) fist in. You're so predictable that I get to move my bottom out of the way every time. (laughs) (laughs) The Brazilian government is planning to pave a highway through the Amazon. For fuck's sake. What the fuck? The Amazon doesn't need a road through it. Oh, Joni Mitchell should write a song about it. Yeah. I feel that this has been unfairly snuck into the good news section, Hannah, <laughs> like when mums mush up vegetables into pasta sauce uh, to get their yeah. kids to eat broccoli. Yeah. I agree. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week when we once more debunk the myth that England is a role model for women's bodily autonomy when it comes to abortion access. Mm, nope. <laughs> Rather than sitting in healthcare where it belongs, abortion still falls under criminal law. This means abortions are legal in England if they are performed by a registered medical practitioner and take place within the first 24 weeks of pregnancy. Otherwise, it is illegal to deliberately end a pregnancy and under the 1861 Offences Against the Person Act, it carries a maximum punishment of life imprisonment. Yes, that is an act from 1861. Truly a marvel of modernity. Why change it, Mickey? Why change it? It's been working since 1861. I know. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. What if it's broke, Hannah? Because there has been a recent rise in police investigations into abortions with the number of suspected illegal, I'm going to put like little inverted commas around there, even though the law says they are illegal, abortions lobbed with police forces in England and Wales rising significantly in the last few years. Something I know that you covered, Hannah, on the pod not so long ago. Yes. And these are not for nothing. Recent prosecutions include that of Carla Foster, who was jailed for procuring her own abortion in 2020, and Bethany Cox from Teesside, who was cleared of the same charge earlier this month. Now, by law, patients' data must not be disclosed without their consent, but NHS staff can breach confidentiality rules to give information to the police about possible crimes if it is in the, quote, public interest. Quite rightly, the Royal College of Gynaecologists and Obstetricians, the RCOG, says it is never in the public interest to report women who have abortions and that they must be safeguarded. Concerned by the rising number of police investigations following abortions and pregnancy loss and the effect this might have on especially vulnerable patients, the RCOG has issued the first official guidance of its kind stating a healthcare worker must justify any disclosure of patient data or face potential fitness to practice proceedings which is at least good news about the bad news. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not interested in who's had an abortion. This member of the public says I don't care. And this member of the public echoes that opinion. Hello and welcome to Standard Issue, Laura Smith. And I say that for the second time because somebody forgot to press the button the first time. Yeah, how are you? Let's do it again. <laughs> I love that you admitted that. I'm the queen of like recording a voice note, realizing I haven't recorded or it hasn't sent, and then trying to re-record it with the same energy. Do you know what I mean? Oh and my god! Like... I had to once say the word, just say the name Gemma Kearney, in exactly the way that it would fit in to something that was pre-recorded. Thought I'd do it about five tries, and then I just kept thinking, no, that none of them work. So I tried again, and then I think I went slightly mad, and I just kept saying. Gemma Kenny, Gemma, and Mickey's kept the recording of it of me just—it's <laughs> like someone having a nervous breakdown just saying the words Gemma Kenny over <laughs> and over and over again. It no longer means anything. Exactly. You've got a new tour starting, your debut tour, and yeah. it's already got loads of shows that are sold out. Yeah, it's sold out. Loads of they sold out really quickly, and then they added more, and then done an autumn leg. So it's it's just really exciting because you've got no measure till it goes on. So you know, it's like setting out your stall, and you know when people talk about small business owners doing a little dance when they sell something. That's how I feel every time a ticket sport or I get ticket sales update. It just means the world to me. So I don't know. It just feels great that 
people are willing to spend their money and it's so nice. I can't wait. I just can't wait. This is the point at which you're first going to meet your audience because these are people that have bought tickets to come and see you, not people that have gone to a club night or, you know, seen you at a festival, which incidentally, I need to say to you, my nephew, the reason that I went to chat to you was my nephew, who's he's 17, went to Reading last year and he came back and said you were the best thing he saw on the comedy tent. Oh, it's funny enough, I was talking about Reading with my daughter this morning because she's applying for university places and one of the courses she's looking at is about, you know, public spaces as well, like things like, you know, curating and, and those sorts of things. And I always say, I worry about Reading, you know what I mean? Because Reading Festival, it, there's not enough, like, you know, like how Latitude is like, sit here, have a glade, you know, all like yeah. that. <laughs> These kids that have their first festival at Reading, the comedy tent becomes one of the only sort of, other than the medical tent, a safe place for them to calm down and just have a little moment. Mm. So it's, it's a tough crowd in the sense of, like, most of them, a lot of the kids seem to not be there for comedy. They're just there because they're in their bucket hat and they've done too much. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like your nephew, of I'm sure he's sensible. So I'm um, stuck. <laughs> The bits when I hear that 17-year-olds, because I just feel like a bit of a granny up there. It's like your mum's come on stage to talk about her dry yeah. fanny, basically. <laughs> Who do you think your audience is going to be? Well, you know, I have done a few work in progresses, and that's been my first taste of who my audience are. And, you know, I'm proud to say it covers so many. There's loads of, like, loads of teachers, because I used to be a teacher, loads of sort of bigger women, you know, plus-size women that are like, yep, yeah, talk it you know like and and, and yeah. see, see themselves in me and 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 that's always nice and you know all the prosecco hunts but you'll get lads nights out couples and then like i've got a gay audience as well which i can't believe because in my head it's like that's the cool audience as well you know like i'm like oh. so it's a really nice mix and that feels lovely to me that it's a mix do you know yeah. what i mean like i get mothers and daughters as well which is nice so you'll get sort of late teens girls and their mums so your show's called living my best life uh, before we get to what your show's about i just wondered how you're finding it are you living your best life is it been what you thought it would be stand-up comedy oh beyond beyond it, it i love it i love the circuit and i think you have got to love it because it's it's grueling i love it i love comedians i love the circuit i love small rooms i love huge rooms for me it's total mastery of self get yourself together to handle the big challenges from you know doing big festivals where you just sort of sometimes shout into the abyss there's nothing I don't love about it I love it even when it goes bad I live by you know the the Millican law of you know you've got to 11 o'clock the next morning to lick your wounds for a bad one yeah yeah. you know it you know even when people tell me they've stopped you go how can you stop because I'm so addicted it's above and beyond really when I was an English teacher and that was after being you know a single mum and, and, you know, on benefits and, and those sorts of things, to then become a teacher and work with people that had English degrees. So even if you were talking about some nonsense on telly, we were all talking about it with the same context and frame of reference and, and, and understanding and insights. And that felt so exhilarating to me. I love that. And then this feels even more exhilarating that I'm with idiots all the time. They yeah. want to say the silliest thing, want to say the funniest thing and... And and when you meet like-minded people and like-spirited people, I, there's nothing better. So I, I can't, I just love it. I love it. That's it. When it's working, it is absolutely magic. Tell me about living my best life and what people can expect when they inevitably book tickets for it. I've come to comedy late. So on, on if I want to give the sensible thing what living my best life means, you know, I came to comedy late. I think, you know, we all know about these under 30 lists where people, you know, you, you watch 15-year-old peak champions at Wimbledon or things like that. And, yeah, you yeah. know, I think it's amazing for me just that, you know, you could be, be in your late 30s, you know, have three kids, have responsibilities, be teaching and, and be a woman and still go, actually, I could still go, I could still have a new life here. Mm, yeah. I, I love that life can surprise you because I think for a long time, I'd say to people, I'd really boost people up and go, well, just go, you know, to myself, you haven't got kids, just do it before you get a mortgage. Or, you know, I'd have all these things. And I think actually, even though I was boosting someone else, maybe deep down I was reinforcing, I couldn't possibly, you know, mm. I, I've got this, I've got that. So overcoming the things that were stopping me doing it, and then to step into this world and, you know, gig with my heroes, like, you know what I mean? And, and I just feel like I've stepped into my best life, like yeah. my real life even. And also, you know, then I had um, breast cancer and uh, well, as soon as I left teaching, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And then 
I, I clung on to sort of comedy and gigging as a way of like clinging on to life sort yeah. of thing. And, then, and now I'm, well, I've come out of that and I'm going on tour. So there's all that sort of celebratory element, but then there's also a massive tongue in cheek hashtag living my best life where the ways we supposedly live our best lives and project on social media is all bullshit. You know, there's like, oh, living my best life. Oh, how's your Monday? Or, you know, boy done good bullshit. I'm, I'm, I'm really ripping into all of that kind of bullshit. And because actually most people know, and when you connect with people, most people get it, is that when you're living your best life, it's the shit that makes you live your best life. The digging deep stuff. Things had to get pretty ugly for me to dig deep and really live my best life, as in learn to love myself and heal and heal. And I can never say that word. It's like, well, <laughs> I had to dig deep. And, you know, a lot of people will put their cancer diagnosis online, which is fine. Hashtag, hashtag kick cancer's ass. And I don't dwell on the cancer really in the tour show. I'm still shaping it, but it's more, no, no, nothing is sacred anymore. Some things have to be an internal journey and not for the likes and the traction and words like that. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, I agree. I have listened to, I don't know what to say, which is the thing you did for, for Radio 4, which is on BBC yeah. Sounds, about your cancer diagnosis. I'm about to say something that you say in that that, that really, really annoys you. But, well, yeah, we got a lot of cancer in our family. My my mum's had breast cancer. My sister currently has cancer. In I'm fact, so we sorry. we tend to refer to it as, oh, it's my turn it, within the family because it goes around quite so much, which I know can be, can be really frustrating. But I did think it was really insightful. I think you say a number of really insightful things. Not least, one of the things that I've heard you say about it, which I think I saw you say it on social media, but it didn't actually make it to the cut with, I don't know what to say, is that you said when you were given a diagnosis, at least it isn't someone that I that I love. What was the reaction to that? Did you did you get a, a lot of women getting in touch about it? Lots and lots and lots and men and people that have gone through it. And, you know, I was really conscious of protecting myself. This sounds really like wanky and I, I don't care, <laughs> but it was a lot of emotional admin. So it was wonderful. Yeah. And, and you want it to resonate. You know, you can have, I think with comedy, comedy relies on the specifics, doesn't it? And, you know, you want it to, A, resonate with everyone. You want it to be universal because broad appeal mm. because you want people to laugh. That's what, like, you know. But then the specifics, I, I, I would hate to have put anything out there that didn't represent or, or did, wasn't faithful to or touch on a nerve with people that have these insights and know about it. I mean, you just made this awful joke about your family, you yeah. know, your mum and your sister. And that's a great joke. I mean, as in naughty joke. My turn. But like, because your humour is everything and, and, and that gallows humour and getting through it is so powerful and being real and being present with people and and it, it is so powerful. And other the terrifying diagnosis, once then you're in it, the delicate kind of dance you're doing and the kind of the friends you meet along the way and the appointments and scans and you've really got to keep your pecker up and and when people don't get it and aren't engaged with it, it's almost like, it's almost abrasive. You know what I mean? It's yeah. almost like it, it, when people just go in double footed and you just go, no, 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 that's not what's going on here. Because when I was first diagnosed, it's almost like you've got no skin. You know, that rawness mm. of when people are ill and you're going through any sort of tragedy or grief or anything, you're so raw. And it, it's nice that, and also people always want to be themselves. I mean, we've, we, even just within 30 seconds of just before we press record and then didn't press record and all that sort of stuff, yeah. we, we pretty much covered forgetfulness and menopause. You know, you, you're a slave to your hormones. You know, it's all very, you want the thing, you don't ever want to lose your identity in things, mm. do you? You, you know, we're talking, you know, grey hair or funny haircuts or forgetting words. It's so important to have that sense of self and cancer is not all defining, but it is life changing. And, there's somehow that dance of here I am with it and am I still me and is this still going on? And I've got lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of DMs and lots of kind of thank you and said it like it is and oh my God, it's so true. And one one thing that really resonated because I wrote about it in The Observer as well when I talked about the yellowy letters that you get from the hospital and people go, oh yeah, I forgot about them. That was almost, yeah, that, that nails it. Those sort of power that those horrible letters have when you're in that nervous state and you know one person messaged and said oh whoops I sent this to my friend who's just been diagnosed and she wasn't ready for it you know what I mean and I and I, so 
you can't assume also that my experience is someone else's experience. Mm-hmm. You know, a friend of mine said, oh, I hated it when people said, how are you? I felt like saying, shut up, how do you think I am? But I like, just how are you? How are you doing? You know? So everyone's different. You do say something that was both, again, I thought quite profound, but also hilarious. You took yourself upstairs to cry about how you might not be there when your children were growing up. And then one of them knocked on the door and you told them to go away. (laughs) (laughs) And just genuinely, genuinely really very funny. Yeah, that's true though, isn't it? I mean... So when does your tour start? um, Starts um, in April, first weekend of April. And yeah, so April through to June, because I'm trying to sort of keep it just a couple of nights a week so I can, you know, be home. So it's sort of on the weekends and... I'm just really excited. I want to be able to really give people a good show and, and, and honour the money they've spent. And yeah, I'm just excited by it. Yeah. I love it. No, yeah. I'm going to come because I noticed that you were in Cambridge. Quite often people don't do Cambridge on a on a, a first tour, but you're at the junction and I don't think yeah. that is sold out. So I need to get some tickets. But One that... is, so we've, we've added another date. So oh. one is. And, yeah. Ooh, exciting. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, better get, I better get off this call yeah. and... Uh, Start doing that. I have one more question because I'm sure people who are fans will be wanting me to ask you this. Bang on it, the podcast that you did for Radio uh, Radio Four, BBC Sounds. Is there more of that coming? Well, no, there's not actually. I mean, that was it, it. Just sort of happened. I think it started from a conversation with Michelle and I, and then I kind of relayed her idea to you know at, at Radio Four because we we were just throwing things about, and then it kind of luckily it could happen because it just worked in our schedule and then it wasn't recommissioned which is great but it, it's then since become this really cult success like we're low the numbers have kind of flown and and so they keep so we get so many dm slides and so do bbc yeah. studios about is there more is there more but I, I, I it's one of those things that could just happen at that time and you know michelle and i loved it and we learned a lot during it and you know and and it was great, but I, I just don't think it will will happen again. Yeah, but yeah, it's such a shame. People love it. I mean, Michelle's really busy, and I'm really busy, and loads of exciting things happening. So we're we're both. I think our attitude is we're really proud of it. We got an award for it. It was like just this nice moment in time. So hopefully, she and I and individually will get something that will satisfy the punters. And she's really great because anyone that slides into her DM, she just recommends all the podcasts you should be listening to. So I've learned from her how to be as 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 generous and gracious. Leave them wanting more. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Laura. This has been brilliant. Oh, thank you for having me. Gemma Kearney. Gemma Kearney. TV and radio presenter Gemma Kearney. Gemma Kearney. Gemma, Gemma Kearney. Gemma Kearney. TV and radio's Gemma Kearney. I know. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by author Kylie Reid, whose debut novel went stratospheric and whose sophomore fiction, Come and Get It, is out next week. Kylie, hello. Hi, how are you? It's good to see you again. It's great to see you again. Slightly different times than when we first met, which was just before the world went into hibernation for COVID. Right. I feel like I haven't really come out completely from the hibernation, so I'm really glad to see you. I've got a real kinship with squirrels. I'm quite happy to do some hibernation. I agree. I agree. They know what they're doing. So your first novel, Such a Fun Aid, which had race relations at its focal point, was an international bestseller that tapped into the zeitgeist and was long-listed for the Booker Prize. Uh, no pressure with this one, then? <laughs> you know, I, I do like a little bit of pressure and competition. There's something about this. You know, I used to work at a children's birthday party studio where we would do birthday parties like three times a day. And they were very hectic, and you had to bring out the cake through a bunch of children. And for some reason, I loved the pressure <laughs> doing that. I said, <laughs> I will do it. So this kind of feels like bringing out the cake through a bunch of children, but I, I really want to try something different with every novel. And I think that a lot of authors will understand as well. When your book comes out, you're already kind of deep under another project. So you're kind of thinking forward toward the next and you just get to celebrate what you did years ago. 
it's going to be really hard for me now to focus on what we should be chatting about and not just talk to you about the maze of children that you had to navigate. You've made that. <laughs> You've thrown that in there. <laughs> it was a great price place to work. And I learned a lot about time management. So yeah, a lot of working with children, you can apply to writing. So it all it all comes together. Personal wealth and how it or the lack of it rules decisions. And sometimes, I mean, quite often, more often these days, personality is the crux of your second novel. What made you want to write about money? Well, I always want to write about money a little. (laughs) I've always (laughs) been drawn to it. But I think it's because while I don't write science fiction, I'm really drawn to the limitations and rules of a world and what drives decisions and relationships and jobs. And money rules everything about what we do, who we date, what we buy, what we eat, how that food was processed, all of those things. And so money is just a driving force that that presents itself very clear to me whenever I'm thinking of new stories. With this one in particular, I wanted to focus on consumption and the nightmare of buying things and the lie that we are told over and over again, which is if you want to be an adult, be more organized, be more fit. All you have to do is buy this thing. Or if you can buy this thing properly or decorate your dorm properly or, you know, splurge in the right way or get sushi and feel better about yourself, then you will be okay. And and all of those are complete lies, but I'm not sure what the truth is, what the other side of that is as well. The novels that I love reading just present human life and behavior in the truest form in a way that's almost haunting and, and you can see and feel and makes you remember things you haven't thought about in years. And so that was my goal here to talk about buying things, young women, and particularly living within a dorm and making that a bit of a hothouse for all of those topics. So much of modern day consumption is sold as self-care. And one of your characters, Kennedy, she actually uses shopping, Target specifically, the, the shop Target specifically, as a sort of therapy. Right. She gets nervous and has a bit of a panic attack and says, let me go to this place where I can feel in control. And I think that is fascinating that capital and economy can make a safe. You need to find control of your life. Just go spend your little dollars on this face mask or these paper clips or or whatever it is. And I do think that that's something that we all do in a certain capacity, whether it's food or spending money on a person or clothes. I think that spending money has become a way for us to feel good. And the reason for that, I'm sure that there's hundreds of thousands going back hundreds of thousands of years. Um, This is me exploring that within the realm of a dorm. I also think it applies to all of us, but quite specifically and particularly to women and young women. I agree. I agree. Young women have a pressure to look a certain way. Young women often hang out with each other in different ways than than a lot of boys are, are encouraged to do. And so, you know, the first, you know, little section of Target is for book clubs and girls' night outs and, and bachelorettes and things. And it's just more and more stuff to buy, <laughs> to build up in your house, to say, what about you? I'm not really sure. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, uh, I, I don't know. This is just a theory I'm thinking of right now, but I guess it stems from the 1950s when capitalism started to really get a grip on all of us proper in that women had helped out during the war helped out kept countries running during the war and then were expected to go back into the home and so how do they keep them busy well the the little wife goes shopping you know all of these goods come on the market white goods become a thing and that that gives her even more time so what does she do well she goes shopping and it becomes sort of part and parcel of being female is to go and spend money on stuff we don't necessarily need. We don't even really need it. It's wild. And now, and of course, this is the front of my mind because I'm a mother now. The children who were rich and poor for hundreds of years used to all play with the same types of things. They would go outside and play things they found there and they would build things. And then when the Industrial Revolution happened, this boom in toys came out and it said, hey, toys are educational. So if you want your child to be smart, you have to buy them this thing. And there we go again, thing. well, I want to better myself. So I have to buy this thing for my child to help them when really you don't need half of it. So stuff was a big part of this novel. If you can believe it, it was around 600 pages when I first finished it. And I think that those extra 100 pages were just more and more stuff and wanting to feel like a tsunami wave of things coming upon these characters. 
my editor was completely right in pulling me back. And now we have come and get it. There's a line that really struck me, actually, as someone who is a writer of a different sort in that just you say, I'm going to paraphrase, but you say to write something beautiful, you just write it down, then go at it with a red pen. She's not wrong. (laughs) I mean, that is, yeah, that's from Kennedy learning how to write for the first time. And for me personally, I don't know about your view, but I just want to put everything on the page and then pull out the good stuff. I think that the editing process is really where the writing happens in its full form. I was a much better writer after I'd been an editor. Really? Yeah. I feel that way after teaching. After I go over my students' work, I'm much more likely to take a red pen to my own things. It's a great practice. Can you give the listeners, without any spoilers, a little pressy of what Come and Get It is about, please? Sure. Yes. Come and Get It is about three different women who, it might sound trite to say, they come to Arkansas and they all want to get a very different thing from their time there. We have Agatha Paul. She's a visiting professor and she is looking to get over a relationship and just kind of have a bit of a rumspringa and have a good time. Millie is a 24-year-old second-year senior, and she just wants to have security and feel like an adult and buy a house when she graduates. And then we have Kennedy coming from Iowa, and she is keeping a secret. She's had a hard incident in her past, and she's looking to start over, and it's not super easy for her. All of these women collide in different ways, and that's come and get it. There were such characteristics from such a fun age in there. Like it's full of humour. It's very warm. It's got very, very well-drawn characters that you sort of feel like you know almost immediately. And while the focus is on money, and I do think money and sort of shame and guilt around money is a big part of the storyline, sex, love, success, other big desires that drive us also come into play. I wondered what is the thing that drives you hardest in life? I should talk to a therapist about that probably. (laughs) Uh, I had a little girl a year and a half ago, and that just drives everything that I do in a really wonderful way. I think having a baby reorganizes your cosmology of the world a bit. And creatively, it makes me take bigger risks because if my baby is fine, why not write exactly what I want to write? And I I do like how that's happened to my brain a bit. What else drives me? You know, anything that I can do to keep my mind fresh and keep my mind really engaged and change as much as possible. I was one of the people that heard that the opportunity you have to change who you are and your personality is most likely in your 20s. And I really took that to heart because I want to carry that into my 30s, 40s, 50s, however long I'm I'm lucky enough to be here. I'm fairly obsessed with keeping my brain and body with the ability to change. I try to get as much sleep as I can and keep my body and mind in a place where I can say, you know what, I'm going to try something new. I'm going to do something different. Trying to find different ways to keep my brain fresh is, is what drives me. It's a real challenge to keep yourself curious, I think. And I do think curiosity is what keeps us young. I agree. I think remaining someone who asks questions, who can very quickly say, I didn't know that, or that's interesting. Can you tell me more? It's interesting because in the past few years, a lot of people talk about feeling seen within novels. And I definitely know what that feels like. I see someone do something for better or for worse. And I go, oh, I do that. I didn't <laughs> it sounded like that. And that's a really wonderful time in a novel. I also just love disappearing. And I love completely forgetting about myself within a work. And so anything that I can do to pique my curiosity and take readers away from themselves, that would, that would give me a lot of joy. I've got to ask you, and it feels a really, it is a personal question. And I think we're kind of weird about money, particularly in the UK. We are very buttoned up about talking about this stuff. Uh-huh. But you've written a whole novel about it. So <laughs> how are you with money? Are you good with money? Were you always good with money? I have always been good with money. Save, 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 save all the time to a fault. And there are items of clothing that I didn't buy in my 20s that I think about now. <laughs> So if you're listening to this, spend it, go buy it, because if you want it, you should go buy it. I This sounds silly, but, you know, this whole money system, the whole economy that we have, we made it up. We don't have to live like this. This is all fake. So go and spend your little doll money because it's all fake. So as much as I can't break out of being good with money, I do recognize that, you know, we made all of this up. We do not have to live like this. And I, I wish that we lived in much different circumstances. I write about healthcare a lot. I write about working 
under certain conditions and low paying jobs often because I see the restrictions that I've had in my own life that other people have as well. Those have always been my obsessions. But to know is not to understand. I recognize the world in this way, but I know that I've always been a big saver. Yeah. So it's set on a campus. And I wondered why you wrote about college kids and what you think draws. I'm going to turn myself a fully grown up. I mean, people might uh, want to at me and tell me that's not true, but I am going to say that I'm a fully grown up. (laughs) Why are we drawn to stories about that age? Because they're all over the TV. They are in books. It's a very popular age to write about. We love that age. I have a few feelings on this. I think that college is the age where you are becoming the version of yourself that you're going to be for the rest of your life. And you're living by yourself for the first time. And a lot of the things that are happening to you are happening for the first time. So the intensity is so much more palpable and and visceral and, and all of those things. With this novel, I interviewed so many young college students and In the novel, I did not want to satirize them. I did not want to make fun of the South, particularly because I love it. I wanted this to be a place where you could just see people in their full dimension. So on some pages, they're saying really clever things that they'll probably think into adulthood. And on some pages, they're making huge mistakes. And it was important for me to not make this a satire, but more of a docuseries of the inside and outs of of young people's lives as they're figuring out who they are at this really pivotal time. Yeah, I think you're you're spot on there. It's that kind of interest in people who aren't quite fully formed. Like you say, they can be smart in one moment and then like fucking idiots in the very next moment. And it's the joy of looking back on that and going, oh, yeah, we're all like that. That was me. That's them. And hopefully they'll be a rounded person at some point. I mean, truly, I still do. (laughs) The the smart thing. I hear you. (laughs) Right after And I feel like college is this moment where you have to do those things and then you go and sit in your dorm and those moments sit with you in a whole new way. And you're just figuring out what that says about you and your personality and and what you want to do with the rest of your life. Mm. And then that shame well will haunt you well into your 40s. Forever, forever. (laughs) And people always told me this will not seem like a big deal when you're older. Yes, it does. (laughs) Those moments. Forever. And I think as a writer, it's delightful to have a good memory in those ways. But as a human being, it's a nightmare. So a little bit of both. <laughs> so Kylie, Come and Get It is published by Bloomsbury and out on January the 30th. What's next? You hinted at the fact that you're probably already deep into another project. I'm always working on something. But right now, if you can believe it, we are still deep into the Such a Fun Age adaptation. And these things take so long and the pandemic really slowed us down. But I'm so happy to say that we have a really great team in place. And I can't say too much, but I'm so excited about what we're making right now. Film? Television? I wish I could say. Oh, oh, she's she's keeping it safe. She's saving it like her money. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I can't help it. So where can people follow you on the socials for when you can tell us what's going on? I'm on Instagram. I took a big step back, you know, with the baby. I had to say, okay, what really matters here? So all of my scheduling is on Instagram. And I would just love to see people again on tour. It really was such a great thing to connect with readers in that way. One thing that was really cool was a lot of people who are bookstagram people would meet for the first time in person at my reading. And so I really encourage anyone to do that. I love when we can take things off of the internet and in person. and, And that's what book tour does. And so if you'd like to come, I'd love to see you there. What a lovely thing. That must feel really nice that your books are creating community. It's so funny when I think about it, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is what art is supposed to do, bring people together to talk about these things. And to be in the middle of that is really wonderful. Kylie, thank you so, so much for chatting with me. Thank you so much for having me. You play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we deliver a brutal knockout to the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. Congratulations to Natasha Jonas, who retained her IBF welterweight title at the weekend after beating Michaela Meyer in front of a home crowd in Liverpool. She was walked into the ring by Jane Couch, boxing legend, who you may recall was the first ever woman to obtain a professional boxing licence in the UK. It was a hard-won bout with Jonas just edging it on a split decision by judges. Jonas took 96-94 and 96-95, while the remaining judge scored 97-93 to Meyer. 
Jonas, who herself is a two-weight champion, praised her opponent after the win, saying she was in the top two people she'd fought and urged her to please use this as motivation to get the title you deserve and become a two-weight world champion. She also announced that at 39 years old, this is going to be her last year in the ring. For her part, Meyer admitted she was disappointed and said she hopes Jonas would give her a rematch. OK, on to rugby. Some big news last week, which was the announcement of an all-new British and Irish Lions women's team with a tour for that new team announced at the same time. You'll be waiting a while, unfortunately, but that tour will kick off in New Zealand in 2027, consisting of three tests against the Black Ferns with some pre-test fixtures. On top of that, major commercial partnerships have also been announced alongside this, including with the investment company Royal London and insurance group Howden. Now, the men's Lions tours, which include squads made up of English, Scottish, Welsh and Irish players, have been going since 1888. So, you know, about time. Friend of the podcast, Shauna Brown, was very happy about the news and said it was exciting. She said current players, as well as young women and girls starting out in sport, can now dream of wearing that famous red jersey. This news is reflective of the upward trajectory women's rugby is on and this tour represents a great opportunity for the best players from Britain and Ireland to be part of the next exciting chapter of the Lions' history. Shauna is working in a sort of uh, ambassadorial capacity with the Lions so we will look forward to hearing more from her about all of this. Congratulations to Emma Hayes who became the 42nd and first woman recipient of the Football Writers Tribute Award last week. Collecting the award, Hayes said it was worrying that it had taken so long for a woman to win it, adding, we're here, we can't go backwards. She said that all she really wanted as a child was to have role models to look up to, and now scores of young girls and boys are thinking now about how amazing Millie Bright is or Sam Kerr is. I think those are the moments I pinch myself about more than I do the achievements. What a legend. Finally, I'm going to point you in the direction of a really interesting interview with Leah Williamson, in case you're interested, which was for the Telegraph Women's Sport, in which she talks about what the paper calls women's football's ACL epidemic. Now, I've wanged on about this quite a lot, so you'll know that Williamson is currently on the verge of returning to the game where she plays for Arsenal in England after a lengthy timeout with an ACL injury, and that women are six times more likely than men to suffer them. The paper says that, 37 players missed the World Cup last summer because of ACL injuries, which is a huge amount. And Williamson talks about her experience as well as the unsustainability of the women's football schedule. I think you could probably apply that across the men's game as well. But anyway, it's an interesting read. That's all from me this week, and I'll be back next time with more women's sports. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, why did we watch Pretty in Pink again? <laughs> Dated. Uh, sorry, I mean, this week we watched 1999's She's All That, which I remember being not great, but nothing could have prepared me for what was to come. It was written by R. Lee Fleming Jr. Nope. And directed by Robert Iscove, who does have his own Wikipedia page, but I've not heard of any of the other films or TV shows listed on it. Apparently, it's a retelling of Pygmalion slash My Fair Lady, but I think we may be crediting it with too much here. It's probably worth mentioning that it is also a Miramax film. And yes, there are lots of unnecessary references to teenagers' tits and indeed shots of them in swimwear. Fun fact, M. Night Shyamalan, 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 M. Night Shyamalan. It's been like 25 years and nobody's no bothered one knows to how learn to how to pronounce it. his name. He recently admitted that he'd had a hand in polishing the script for this film. The turd. <laughs> Hannah, I've literally written here, insert jokes about turds here. <laughs> I don't know what to say about this film, really. It didn't launch anyone's career. It didn't establish anyone. It stars Freddie Prince Jr. and Rachel Lee Cook as the leads with a bunch of others. Anna Paquin and Kieran Culkin are the high points. Usher Raymond III is the low ebb of this particular tide. Let's look at the plot. Zach Seiler is a bellend. Sorry. An enormously privileged, hugely popular and both academically and athletically gifted high school student. Lucky him, eh? Sad times for him when his horrendous girlfriend returns from spring break, having dumped him for someone objectively worse. 
Oh, they were supposed to be prom king and queen together. How annoying for Zack, still. Fuck her anyway, she's not such a big deal. Isn't it really all about Zack? Couldn't he make anyone prom queen with his vast wealth and popularity? What about Lainey Boggs, a young woman whose mum died at a tragically young age, leaving her traumatised, overburdened and not really knowing what to do with a mascara wand? She's really attractive, but she does wear glasses and we all know what that means. And dungarees, Jen, come on. And she's also got a really bad hairpiece. <laughs> it's so bad, isn't it's it? It's not good. It's not good. Well, that's all right. Zach is prepared to cross literally any boundary in order to win a bet with his awful friend that he can make mad sad Lainey the prom queen. Before you know it, he's turning up at her home and place of work uninvited and telling her what to wear because that's romantic. Will Lainey be prom queen? Does anyone really care? Still, doesn't she look pretty without her glasses? Hang on. Maybe Zach actually fancies her. Hang on. Maybe he actually cares about her. Here he is at her house again to chat to her about it. Here is her dad again saying, no problem, come on in. It's a bit unfair to talk about the critical reception. It's not supposed to be a work of art, is it? But if you're interested, Roger Ebert gave it 2.5 stars out of four. And he said, it's not a great movie, but it has its moments. The public had other ideas and it reached number one at the box office on its opening week and grossed $103 million worldwide from a budget of under $10 million. In fact, Netflix saw fit to produce a gender-swapped version of this film just two years ago. The imaginatively titled He's All That, because I suppose it's all okay if we can be pricks to men too. I am guessing that neither of you have seen this before. Just a, uh, did, did either of you recognise the set? Because this is honestly like the only really interesting thing I read about it, and it does explain a cameo in it. It's Buffy, sir. Buffy. Yeah. It is, yeah. I didn't recognise it, but then... We know how observant I am. <laughs> but also, Sarah Michelle Geller is married to Freddie Prince. She is. Junior. I think they had worked together already on uh, I Know What You Did Last Summer. I can't, I forget the chronology of um, of these particular films. That is very, very forgivable, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And neither Thanks. Hannah or I could, could correct you on it if you did attempt to, to well, put it down there. And in answer to your question, Jen, I not only had never seen this before or heard of it, I think I probably could have gone the entire rest of my life and never encountered it were it not for Rated or Dated. Mick, had you seen it? I hadn't seen it before, no. Okay. So this is obviously, it's a teen rom-com and there were quite a few like this at the time. Most of them starring Julia Stiles, Save the Last Dance, <laughs> 10 Things I Hate About You, etc. Although I I loved 10 Things I Hate About You and I, I think I'd be really sad to watch it again now. Cause... Isn't that based on The Taming of the Shrew though? It is, yeah. yeah. But it's all, basically, it's all very similar. It's like dorky slash difficult woman gets made popular slash sexy slash less difficult so they're all around the same time eat quite mickey is this a good time for you to talk about susan faludi (laughs) i think a female perspective on she's all that would have resulted in a very different film slash this film not being made (laughs) although you know zach does also change a bit it's a bit like Greece, right? You know, at the end where Danny is willing to change, but luckily she's done all the to. changing, so he doesn't have to. I mean, yeah. he pays homage to Greece, doesn't it? With my highlight of the film, which is the weird old dance to the Rockefeller skank that Usher claims to have taught them the week earlier. Lols. When did he fit that in? Which I watched twice because I was so surprised and astonished by it and, and quite liked that it was just quite surreal that they bung that in. Who doesn't love a flash mob? And yet, still, irredeemable. Three minutes couldn't save the other 87. When you say he changes, do you mean that he decides to tackle bullying with more bullying? He does do that, yes. But he rescues Kieran Culkin, and he is an absolute highlight of this, isn't he? Little Simon Boggs, what a joy. I I would say that, but I actually think, for me, there was one scene in this that I actually really enjoyed, and it's not what's happening in the scene, it's what's happening in the background of the scene, and that is Kevin Pollock watching, what's that show called? The Real World. No, uh, the quiz show. Oh, Jeopardy. 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 Oh, that is amazing. Kevin Pollock watching Jeopardy. Yeah, and actually some of the answers that he gives are fucking hilarious, including one where they say, which printer 
like released <laughs> the, the King James Bible when he said Hewlett Packard. <laughs> that bit I really enjoyed. I thought Kevin Pollock was good as yeah, well. Me too. Yeah, her family with a much more likable bit. I just found the whole thing just really insubstantial. I knew what was going to happen. I knew that like that she was going to find out it was a bet and it was all. Yeah, there's nothing to it. It was just, more than it being rubbish. It just how big a bit of fluff it was. I just couldn't couldn't believe that many people had rushed to see it at the cinema. Also, who is voting for Taylor Vaughan? Because she's a fucking horror show. She's yeah. awful. Why does she still get to be prom queen? Because like, who's voting for her? There's a couple of other like famous people I spotted in this as well. Foggy's uh, in Claire it. Claire Duval. Foggy from Daredevil. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Claire Duval, who actually looks exactly the same now as she did then. She absolutely she, does. She really does. She hasn't changed at all. She's yeah. got such a distinctive face shape, though, I think. I'd recognise her in anything. One thing it did do, and this happens every time I watch this kind of film, which is, you know, pretty much always for rated or dated, I am so fucking grateful that we didn't have to go to prom. It seems horrific. Like, the pressure on prom, and I know that now in the UK, prom is a thing, but the fact that our generation, and your generation, Jen, because you're that little bit I did have a prom, actually. Did you? um, Yeah, but they they didn't, it was just a disco. It was just a disco where you wear a nice frock. That's all it was. It was... Like prom queen and prom king. That's Yeah, horrific. they didn't do any of that, though. I feel like it explains America. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. It reminded me of the Buffy that we watched, in as much as it had hidden in all of it one feminist line that then was kind of undone by by what came next, which was that they said, you run like a girl. And she said, I am a girl. And then they all were like, oh, I don't when they were playing volleyball and it kind of undermined it it's this i think in buffy it was something like he said you're not like other girls and she said i am and then yeah. went all girly yeah i don't think they have a lot of chemistry either the pair of them <laughs> no they absolutely do not i don't think anyone in this is particularly um charismatic or charming or there's there's nothing is there there's there's really not a lot to go on in this it's kind of like all of the other teen rom-coms of that era i don't know i'm surprised now that he gets to come out of it as well as he does i suppose as you say mickey he quote unquote changes a bit but she's done most of the changing so i suppose he learns a lesson which is why he gets to come out of it all right ish but wouldn't it have been better if she'd just been like you're horrible absolutely <laughs> I think i'll leave it there actually the thing when he says but i didn't know you and i didn't know me I think it's quite a nice line, but the rest of the film just doesn't back it up. Well, it's good that he says, I didn't know me, because when he says, I didn't know you, you do immediately think it's a horrible way to behave. Absolutely. Regardless of of who it's directed at. It's just vile behaviour, full stop. But then he says, I didn't know me. So you're like, "Okay, fine. We've all learned a lesson here. Off we pop. Now we go to Dartmouth or wherever the fuck you're going to. Who cares? And that's it, isn't it? His dilemma that means that he's confused and we're supposed to have sympathy for him couldn't be more privileged he's a wealthy white guy who has his pick of very expensive colleges to go to oh hand me the box of tissues what a sad story that is i wonder if they still make these sort of films or whether like netflix basically has hovered up that market with i don't know really bad series i mean this is aimed at teenage girls right think so i can't imagine this is aimed at teenage boys it's just aimed at teenagers probably isn't it i think i think teenage boys would probably go and see it because there's you know attractive young ladies in it and they talk about their tits so it's probably the kind of thing that maybe a teenage boy would take his girlfriend to or something like that i don't know a date night movie yeah what a date <laughs> it's got a bunch, a bunch of people being hideous to each other yeah i don't know it's it's funny isn't it because I, I remember this one because it was obviously 1999 i was the demographic that it was aimed at because i was a teenager then and i remember watching it and i don't i don't remember very much about it other than the whole glasses thing because you sort you age out of these things don't you so then it's like do, do they still exist i don't know do they still make them i hope that the ones that they make now if they do make them, have a slightly more progressive attitude. I guess the equivalent today, and it's a TV series, and obviously it's quite a lauded TV series on Netflix, might be Sex Education, which definitely takes a broader look 
at relationships among teenagers, right? And that's what we're talking about now, kind of love and relationships among teenagers. You? Is that the kind of thing that teenagers watch? Is that a sort Oh, of... God, I hope not, Jen. That's a very depressing thought. They watch Stranger Things and Umbrella Academy. It's what teenagers watch. You actually watch, know a teenager. You tell us, Emma. Oh, yeah. Well, he watches YouTube and... He's off to see Woody Harrelson tonight, so uh, yeah. Yeah, and he watches The Sopranos, so he's maybe not the best example. But Can we get to the word dated yet? Yeah, sure, why not? I think we, we, we've flogged this dead horse for long enough, haven't not we? Not as long as they did. <laughs> <laughs> An hour and 35 minutes, it was mercifully brief. Yeah, it was mercifully brief, brief. At least. And three minutes of that was the Rockefeller skunk, which I did enjoy. Right, well then, go on. Dated or dated? <laughs> um, yeah. Dated. Dated. Agreed. Dated. Let's move on. Who's up next? I think it's me, isn't it? I think you might have a bit of a classic for us, Mick. <laughs> Say a classic. I feel like we're going in with another dated already, but we are going to watch 1974's The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, a little bit more Ray Harryhausen. Ooh. Ooh That's definitely the one where she turns into a bird, right? Let's find out. <laughs> <laughs> Standard issue for all women. 